this this by Welcome to episode 118 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Kevin O'Connor, founder of Find the Best, the Compare Anything engine, and DoubleClick, a company that was subsequently sold to Google for $3.2 billion. Need I say more? Hi, Kevin, and welcome to the show. Good to be here. Hope you say a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Kevin, you have quite an extensive background, and um, I guess maybe before we get into your, you know, the more recent things that you've been up to... Um, I think it'd be nice to hear a little bit of your background from maybe how you started in technology and what were some of your first entrepreneurial uh, ventures. I'm kind of old. I could, I'll, I'll make it quick. I'll give you a quick summary. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I just always, always been turned on by technology and just go around and collect garbage old TV sets as a kid and then went on and became electrical engineers and go get my PhD, uh, but dropped out the day I got accepted to uh, start a company because that's right when the PCs were hitting and guys like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were uh, kind of pioneering a whole new effort. So I got into that pretty early with uh, a company you've never heard of, Intercomputer Communications Corp that got sold a few times and uh, I guess it's still around today. And it's just as each new wave came along, whether it was networks or the internet with DoubleClick, um, kind of start new companies. So double click back in 95 and then uh, find the best about a year and a half ago. So, so when, when you uh, decided to drop out of your PhD program, I mean, was there, was this opportunity that took you, took you off of that track, something that had been brewing in the background for several months or did it, was it just sort of this last minute thing that you had an opportunity and you're like, screw it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know, I'm from Detroit. I was University of Michigan and I didn't know what an entrepreneur was and my dream as a kid was always get a PhD, go work at Bell Labs, and it just doesn't even exist anymore. So right. pretty good decision. Um, but I would I was an intern at IBM at one of the first one of the first PC projects, and I just I got really turned on by the I was kind of turned off by computers, to tell the truth, because I was on you know punch cards and all that crap, and and then the PC came along. I was like, wow, this is I love it. So it was very optimistic. It just happened. It was a confluence of time. Right. And now, had you, um, you know, I, I guess, were you inspired by stories of, of Apple and stuff at the time? Or is that something that you had in your mind? I guess we were all inspired by by those guys. I mean, they were so young. They were, I don't know, what's, how old is Steve Jobs? 55? So he's just a, you know, five, six years older than me. And yeah, I mean, those guys were they kind of proved that, that, that you could drop out of school and, and, and Build great companies. So the first, so the first, that first company that you uh, got involved in, were you like a founder of that company, or were you um, joining nope. in with another founder? I was. Yeah, there was a, a two of us, uh, three of us that had um, an intern with the other guy, Bill Miller. Um, and was that a hardware or software company? You know, it was actually a combination. We we tied PCs into uh, mainframes, Unisys mainframes. So making the PC, a smart PC, look like a dumb terminal. Um, and so we had a hardware connection. They had all this proprietary hardware. So being an electrical engineer kind of kind of worked out well. So clearly, by the time you got you got to DoubleClick, um, 
and find the best. I mean, you, you really are a serial entrepreneur in the truest sense. Uh, I guess I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was kind of interesting was that when, I guess you invested in um, uh, DoubleClick, I guess you created, it was called Internet Advertising Network, I guess, at the time. And there was a second company that you started right at the exact same time, right? It was, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm missing my notes what it was called, but Internet, you started two. Co- yeah, it was Internet Security Systems. Okay. Um, ISS. You, okay. You guys are, uh, your hacker crowd will love, love those guys. Right. And so you started two at the, at the same time. I mean, how, how did that work for you? I mean, that would seem like that would be kind of a, <laughs> um, that would be hard to stay focused if you're doing two startups right yeah. at the exact same time. You know, I, I didn't. I wasn't a founder of ISS. I found it was basically this twenty-year-old kid named Chris Klaus living with his grandma. He dropped out of school and and it'd come up with a. It was kind of a, it was a hacker tool, right? It was if you remember uh, what was the name of that product, Satan, similar to that, but it was used. It was used by it was on the good side, right? It was used by corporations to to figure out what was what was uh, insecure in their systems, or unsecure. Um, and so I, he was 20 years old, didn't know what to do. So I kind of helped him kick that off. I invested some money, worked with him for six months. But my real goal, I really wanted to start something, something from scratch. I was pursuing a bunch of ideas with Dwight Merriman, trying to figure out, you know, what was going to be hot on the internet. Because the internet was just, just coming out. I mean, the internet had been around for a while, but the commercial internet uh, was just happening back in 1995. Right. And one thing was interesting, you said that in, in, the, in your I was sort of bio when you started with um, ISS, ISSX, um, that Chris Klaus was this brilliant kid, and that was kind of what inspired you to uh, invest in. I mean, what, what, did he, what made him so brilliant in your eyes? What did he, what did he have done? Well, you know, here's a kid, 20 years old, never, never, never done a company. He not only had a product, but he had managed to sell it to, to 10 Fortune, 5 com- Fortune 500 companies for, I think, I think it was like $20,000 each. And so I looked at that and I was like, that's a slam dunk. I mean, the guy's got a product. He's validated it. He just doesn't know uh, how to grow the company because he's never been there. Um, so right. it was, it, it's very rare. I mean, I've done some venture capital over the last 25 years and, I spent the last six years doing it. It's just very rare to find somebody that has a product and has sold it to you know ten major cor- companies on their own. Right, uh, right. Well, how did he manage to do that at the age of twenty? Was he cold calling, or did he have connections? And no, I mean, I th- I, I think he was kind of you know like we all were kind of you know hackers at one time, and was was really intrigued by that and and figured, geez, and you know, all these hackers hacking in the systems, why don't I come up with a tool for? For, uh, I guess, I guess it's a very specific tool. So, so that tool, you could imagine that tool could be kind of sold at that high level. Um, I think it's the tool that it was, Jason, that made it. Well, happen. like I mean, this is 1995, right? There's no internet. I mean, the internet's so nascent; it's hard. I mean, just because something exists, I mean, how do you get into a? a, a you said it was like these major companies. I mean, how do you get in and have a meeting with the people who are who are making the decisions? That that would be an interesting um, thing to understand. Yeah, you know, his tool was cool because he could walk into any any business and, and they all think they're, that their systems are secure. I mean, he'd walk into, you know, Department of Defense, the NSA, whatever. They'd all, There's no way you'll ever break into my system. And he'd, he'd run his tool and then boom, it would, you know, crack open everything like, like a beer can. I mean, it was just the, the systems were completely unsecure. Uh, so, so he was able got to, their attention. Yeah, got their attention big time. And they realized, geez, we got massive holes. So it was actually a pretty easy sell. Because you could demonstrate it, right? Right. Um, 
And, and I guess as as a as an investor, that must have intrigued you too, because if he's one guy and he's a kid, and to have the moxie to go in there and do that, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. I mean, that shows a lot of hustle, I guess, on top of technical acumen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, there's it's kind of three things you look for in, in, in venture is you know, can the guy build a product? Is it a big market? And, 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 and does the market want it? And he had all three, so. Right. And how did it, how did, how did it end up doing as a company? It did great. It sold to IBM, I think 2008, for um, like $1.3 billion. Good grief. <laughs> I guess that's a home run. <laughs> that's yeah, like no, quadruple it's... platinum. <laughs> yeah. record business good grief uh so i guess that was one of your best investments of all time is that fair to say it was it was a good return on time <laughs> <laughs> wow um so well, why don't we talk about your your most recent venture which is find the best um i'd be interested to start at the beginning of that like uh, you know how did you come up with the idea and how did you get started on it okay so I've been doing venture. First, I've been, I've been doing startups for 25 years and, you know, hundred hour weeks. And I didn't know my family. And, and, and right around 2001, I left New York and came to Santa Barbara to try to try to get some balance in, in my life. So startups, it's just it's a lot of work. Um, so I started doing venture investing and hanging out with my kids and probably screwing them up. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I've always been looking for good ideas. But the one thing I kept running into the same problem, it took me a long time to sort of piece, piece it together. That these were the exact same problem, just, just different, different venues. Um, I just found that the internet was becoming more and more full of crap. Uh, just sorting through the crap, trying to figure out what was real, what wasn't real. I was looking for a web hosting company for, for O'Connor Ventures. And you know, you find the top 10 web hosting companies, all these recommendations. And then you, you sort of peel back the layer and you find out it's just a bunch of affiliate chills. Uh, people yeah. trying to scam you know, what's, what's, what's best. Uh, we were looking to, you know, find the best ski resort, you know, and Deer Valley kept showing up as number one. And I'm like, nah, there's no way Deer Valley is number one. You know, and just trying to find information, comparable information on ski resorts. You know, we're looking for colleges for my kid and private schools. You know, it's just it's trying to find comparative information was just so hard. I could do it in Google, but it was just taking hours and hours and hours of days to put together the, the information. So we started thinking, uh, Scott Leonard and myself, uh, he's a CTO. He was the second engineer at DoubleClick, trying to figure out, okay, well, maybe this, this comparison engine for highly considered products, everything from, you know, mercury levels in fish to colleges to, you know, fractional aircraft programs, maybe it's all the same problem. And, you know, could we develop a platform to, to help consumers, you know, objectively decide, make big decisions? Um, you know, build a trusted source of information. And that's really how it started. It was just sort of, I was fed up with the internet. But look, look, what, what would be the difference between the data on, on Find the Best and the data on the affiliate sites? Like, just what, what, why is it independent, as it were? Well, we do, we, for us, I mean, today we have no links to anyone. There is no affiliate revenue, there's no advertising revenue. So oh, everyone who, everyone, we try to collect as much information as possible. It's not the top 10, it's, it's the 100 um, companies uh, and their complete information of how they compare against each other. Uh, right, I mean, it's kind of these affiliate shows, kind of a misnomer, it's not the top 10, it's the top 10 deals that I cut um, with people. Right. And, and we don't do that, there is no pay to play. We give everybody 
you know, for construction project management software, we show all the vendors and, and how they compare against each other. So do you, do you basically make any kind of judgment or you just, you just uh, create a, a compare matrix with checkboxes so people can turn it on and off kind of thing? So there's the objective part, and, and, and part of what inspired us was Kayak came out, I don't know, three years ago, and we just love the way they, you know, allow people to filter and sort and, and, and figure out, you know, what, it, what is the best product for them. So we took that model and applied it across for a lot of different products. So there's a very, very objective part. Now, we are also aggregating, you know, similar to like a, a Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, we, we, we do assemble ratings huge number of ratings, you know, a hundred different sources, um, what we call expert ratings and, and, and create a meta rating. So we're not passing judgment, but we're, you know, we're giving people, Hey, this is, this is the objective data. And this is what the experts are saying, uh, is the best uh, for a particular class of product or service. Uh, and then we also allow users. We don't make any, any editorial judgment on anything, but we do allow, you know, users, uh, to, to rate and, and comment. A startup that we've been presented with a few times with people sending sending in their ideas has been kind of what what I call boil the ocean startups. I see Jason, <laughs> you've written this as a question as well. So basically, um, the one thing that I've always known to be very difficult is to kind of grow a boil the ocean kind of startup where you are very horizontal rather than vertical. What's your sort of strategy about about doing that? No, you know, that's a great question. That was probably the number one question we got for venture capital. And then the number one question we had, you know, everything in my, everything that I've learned over the past you know, 25 years is you don't go horizontal, you know, you go vertical, right? Crossing the chasm, all that stuff, uh, you know, become expert in one particular area. Uh, what we discovered is that the, 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 the most of the niches that we're going after. So if you look at the comparison market, let me step back. Comparison market, you got travel. That's done very well. You got shopping comparison, very commodity, you know, next tags, shopping.com, those kind of things. You know, what's the cheapest Nike soccer ball? Then you got this really wide breadth of, of considered purchases, dogs, um, uh, colleges, ski resorts, you know, which, which snowboard to buy. I mean, things that you spend a lot of time thinking about what you should purchase. Most of those companies that are doing it, there's thousands of niche sites. They've all, most of them we have, it's a very small market, so they don't have any technology that they've been able to deploy against the problem. So our theory is that if we could spend the money in technology development, uh, that we'd be able to go across a very broad horizontal, a, a lot of different markets. And then none of these niche markets, whatever, never develop a brand. Uh, and so our, what we were going to do, you know, we were going to find experts in all these areas, but we discovered is that the technology platform we developed is so, so powerful that we can... We can do a deep dive about a, about a week. We have sort of almost journalists that do a deep dive into a particular topic, research it, figure out how people are, are making decisions in that market, whether it be camera lenses or, or motorcycle insurance. Um, and then, you know, we can, we can accumulate that data and present it. And it's much easier for us to do a deep dive into that market than, the, than those markets that develop the technology. So what you're saying is the the initial research is human powered, and then um, once you figure out the source of information, you apply technology and algorithms to uh, pull it all together. Uh, so it's human curated. So the humans okay. figure out how it should be organized. Then we okay. outsource a lot of the data accumulation. So most of our data does come from you know primary source manufacturers, uh, manufacturers or you know the owner of the product or service. 
Sure. Uh, so we don't we don't do we don't do scraping um, content scraping, um, and then but we use the technology to present it in multiple ways to the user and allow the user to to, to manipulate the information to to find their <laughs> okay. best choice. So once you figure out a particular niche, say uh, camera lenses or something like that. Um, how much human uh, intervention is required on an ongoing basis uh, after you after you sort of get uh, your algorithms tied into the data sources? So another great question. So that that was that was one of the big issues, right? So there is the accumulation of the initial data, but how to keep it fresh, how to keep it accurate, uh, and that's where the sort of the user generated content part comes in. You know, businesses are coming in and, and claiming we allow them to come in and claim and own their own that listing uh, and make modifications. I mean, the, the person that has the, the biggest best interest to make sure that their information is accurate, you know, is the company. So they right. come in and, and, and make modifications. And that's happening. Right, right. You know, your, this, your idea um, for Find the Best reminds me a little bit of Jason Calacanis's idea for Mahalo, who we interviewed uh, not too long ago, and which was that he was looking for stuff on the internet and decided that this, the results that you would find on Google kind of sucked and that they would, uh, I guess their initial approach was to just human curate these, um, I don't know, mini sites based on a, on a topic. And then they sort of pushed away and decided to go more like a how-to model, I think is, is what I understand. And I'm curious, you know, have you, have you paid attention to Mahalo and um, in, in terms of what find the best should focus on and not? Because it looks like you're going in a slightly different, you're going more product comparison than necessarily just, um, you know, niche topic um, curation. Yeah, I mean, my impression of what Mahalo started out as is similar to Cosmics, which is, which is more sort of article-based, Wikipedia-based, where you take a, let's say a, a, a BM, uh, I don't know my BMWs, um, let's say a, a, a Ford F-150 truck, right? There was an mm-hmm. article and there was a lot of mashups on everything from Ford F-150s, right? So there'd be, you know, you got your Twitters coming in, you got your tweets coming in, you got your, you know, photos, you got your blogs, everything to do with the Ford F-150. Uh, similar to what sort of what Cosmics is doing uh, and similar to what Freebase was doing. What, what our approach is sort of 180 degrees different from that. We say, okay, we're going to do cars. We're going to organize all cars figure out a taxonomy, how, how people would navigate and make a decision for buying a car. So, you know, within a car, you got a category of trucks you know, within trucks, you've got, you know, you got Nissan and Ford and within Ford, you got you know, the F-150s and, 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 to, and to try to normalize that information across all of those particular products, as opposed to they sort of start out with just a, I guess in the semantic world would just be an entity, um, a single entity. Right. I mean, it almost sounds like, whereas Google, I mean, Google doesn't have any intelligence as to what it's searching for is, is in, beyond the links, at least, in a, at least as far as you can tell when you do a search, right? You do a search for Ford 150 and it doesn't, it, the engine itself doesn't know the difference between a Ford 150 and, you know, a Trans Am. It's just, or anything else, right? Or a tree or a chair. It's just a, a word that has a relationship to other words. But you're creating sort of an intelli- underlying intelligence of this is what this object is, and these are the other kinds of objects, and these are the attributes of those objects, and this is how we're going to compare them. And I'm wondering, do you think that, I mean, I, I, can, I can see why your approach would ultimately be a better and smarter approach, because you, it'd be, it would be difficult to game, and it ultimately can build on 
a, a layer of intelligence. Um, and what are your thoughts on on Google as a competitor? Are they going to start moving in your direction? Because they they always talk about organizing the world's information, and the best way to organize the world's information would you'd think would be to have some fundamental understanding of what that information is that you're organizing. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't see Google, I, mean, I don't see the Google, Google search engine as a competitor, right? I mean, the search, the search engine is a great tool. It's a great wrench, you know, I, right. I just assume on the wrench, I mean, it's a great wrench. It's a great, but it doesn't necessarily make a good screwdriver, a good hammer. Uh, and for us is, is when you are making a purchase decision on something, uh, you want to be able to compare. You want to be able to compare, you know, the various attributes on an apples to apples basis. Uh, you know, Google, you can find anything you want. And most of our traffic comes from Google. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, but I think we're addressing sort of the issue. Topic's been around for a long time. It's sort of vertical search. How do you do specialized search with a, within a particular topic uh, where you, you, you've, um, um, you can do a more structured search? Uh, now, Google's tried it with Google Squared, which is kind of using their wrench. So using the, you know, the, the, the crawl technology to try to assemble stuff. Uh, right. I don't think it works. Uh, but Google also has another program that they called, and I can't remember the name, but if you, if you search for mortgage rates, um, they've been collecting data feeds from all the, all the, all the mortgage companies in a very structured, structured manner. So, you know, they are, they are doing it to an extent for a certain limited number. I think they do it to credit cards as well. Tends to be financial service data that they're they're going after, where they can get you know good structured data feeds. Okay, uh, just stepping back a second, uh, something you said there made me chuckle a little bit. Um, when we were talking about uh, that, you needed to convince the VCs about the boil the ocean approach. And I was just thinking to myself, why why would you need to uh, convince VCs? Surely, like with the level of success you've had, you can just walk in with a, a napkin and just write out a business and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Does it not work that easily? No, I mean. I- I don't, I don't think it works. <laughs> well, I, I had a question that's sort of similar then, Justin, is, um, yeah. well, too, I mean, with the level of success you've had, I mean, could you just fund it yourself? I mean, I mean, would you really need to get the VCs involved? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. No, it's good. It's good. When we had, um, there was three partners, uh, and we did fund it for, for, uh, for a while. Um, okay. and I was willing to keep funding it. Um, but I also saw, I mean, I'm a huge believer in VCs and we need it. This is the first consumer product I've ever done. Really want to bring on VC that had, you know, sort of good, great consumer web background. Um, and VCs are just great networkers. And being down in Santa Barbara, it's, you know, it's a bit isolated. Nice to have. Well, how, how, how does that yeah, how does that work exactly? I mean, I, I'm, I'm just always curious about this sort of value add that you hear about VCs. I'm like, what? I mean, do they come in and they give you some brilliant insight that you hadn't thought about? Because, I mean, you're obviously a smart guy. You're thinking about this day and night. You're working with the product. You're thinking about the market. You're talking with your partners. And I'm just wondering, is some VC going to come in and, in you know, an hour of inspiration, just think of things that you, you've never thought of? But I always find that I'm very skeptical of that because I just wonder, I mean, how often do they say things and come up with ideas that you just flat out had never thought about? Well, I mean, the VCs, well... <laughs> One, to be a top-tier VC, you tend to have to have, have some pretty impressive credentials, right? I mean, you've built something very impressive. You know, you've, you've worked at a lot of different companies. You've had a lot of success in your life. So, you, you know, you're dealing with, with I mean, I was, I was a VC, right? I mean, you, 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 you're dealing with some people who are 
some of the smartest people I find in the world uh, that are pretty accomplished. And they also have the advantage is that they're looking at 10, 20 different companies. You know, they're, they're actively involved and they've looked at hundreds of companies. Um, so they just have a lot of good ideas of what's going on, what's worked and what hasn't worked. Uh, I've been lucky. I mean, we've had some great, great VCs that, that, right. that have been you know, really helpful. You know, they want to grow the business. They want to support you. They want to help you. Uh, but, and they've had some great ideas. <laughs> Great encouragement. So they, have, so, they, tell you. so they do have ideas that you hadn't in fact thought of. So you, it's not just a matter of like they can help you recruit a director of marketing or something um, or help you uh, or help introduce you to some uh, partner that might, um, you, know, biz, you know, strategic partner that might work out. They actually do have strategic ideas, product ideas that you find, you know, worth, worth it, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, you tend to hear horror stories about VCs, but that's usually, you know, horror story. I mean, there right. there's some bad VCs. I can name some bad VCs, but that I didn't find very value added. But but generally, they're really good. The ones that the, the companies you're, oh my god, they came in and took over my company. VCs do not want to take over your company. Has has being an investor changed how you you approach doing a startup? That's a good question. I haven't thought about it. I mean, I I don't think it has. I think being quite honestly, I don't think. For me, being an investor was kind of interesting, but it, it wasn't passionate. For me, being you know 100% focused on one thing, you know, that's more my DNA. I just get obsessed with something. I get completely, completely obsessed. And well, if you're investing in someone else's company, you're not going to get obsessed. It's you know it's fun, it's interesting, but I don't think about it in the middle of the night. That's probably closely related to the fact that you're uh, an engineer you know, it, it, by training, if not just by, you know, uh, your DNA, right. Which is like, you get on a problem and you just kind of get hooked into it. And I would bet that engineers who turned and who become investors because maybe they've had a successful exit would probably fall into your category. And, um, because it is, it's, otherwise you're just kind of, you know, it's, it's almost like being a dilettante as an investor. You, you know, think a little bit about this, think about that, but you can't really sink your teeth into it and, and really work on an interesting problem. Yes. But ours are a lot better. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> One question I'd be uh, that's related to this is that, you know, you, you've, you sort of hear this thing like um, VCs are going to want to know what is your competitive advantage? I mean, was, was that a kind of question you ask yourself? Because if you're a startup and you're going off this market um, and there's going to be established players and there's going to be, like you said, there's the boiling ocean versus knowing an individual niche, like how are you going to compete against a, a, a niche, an expert site uh, for, say, cars when you're going to tackle everything? I mean, how, how did you think in, or did you think in terms of competitive advantage? And if you did, what was it? No, absolutely. I mean, so the first one, the first issue was, could we do it? You know, could we come up with a broad-based comparison engine and that would work across a wide variety of products? So that was a big question. And, and you know, it took us probably a year to, to, to solve that problem. Um, at the same time, we were wondering, you know, could we compete against these niches? I mean, two things that sort of struck us that, that we could is one, these niche sites were just terrible. You know, here I am, I'm looking at, you know, I came across, you know, probably six, seven, eight, ten different things that here are the people that specialize in a particular market and they were terrible. You know, they just did not have the technology, didn't have the, the right data. They were biased or whatever it was, it just, they couldn't do it. Um, 
so that was our competitive advantage. I mean, a lot of a lot of VC says, "Hey, why don't you just focus on one particular area?" Um, right. You know, pick one area and go after it. And we felt that you know, going after this broad base, you know, we could relate, and, and it's worked out to be true. You know, we could develop clusters of information. You know, we don't just do cars; we do motorcycles, uh, ATVs, um, uh, snowmobiles. Uh, we do car insurance, you know, motorcycle insurance, RV insurance, home insurance. So, so we do all these things that are, that are all related to each other. Um, and then those relate to other things. So we have clusters of, of expertise. How are you getting traction and what's the revenue model? Uh, well, the traction, traction is going great. Uh, we, you know, most of the traffic is coming in from the search engines. We don't, we don't buy any, buy any uh, advertising. Uh, and then we're reaching out to you know, publishers to, to distribute the content. But almost all of our content's open. You can come and grab it and embed it, you know, whatever you want. So a lot of bloggers have, have embedded content or are linking back, to, linking back to us. The revenue model is, you know, ultimately it is going to be advertising. But we're not going to probably mess with that for another eight months. But if, someone, if someone's like doing comparison for, I don't know, home insurance, and they find through you the best home insurance site, um, doesn't it make sense that you take some, you know, a slice of the action on that? If they, if they click through to that, that insurer, like, how can you stop yourselves from taking that money? Well, I mean, it, no, no. I mean, it's it, going to bait me into the affiliate thing. Um, and you know, look, if, if we, when we do figure out exactly how we're going to do it, it'll always be upfront and it will never be a pay to play. It'll never be that, you know, these search results, it'll be more of a Google model where the search results are not biased based on, you know, who pays what, but there would be, you know, paid sponsorship. Uh, clearly marked. Okay, so there, so there'd be like a yeah, I understand. So just like a a Google ad at the top that would be completely related to the industry, and it would obviously target the customers as best as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And one thing I learned at, at DoubleClick is 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 you, you know purchase purchase intent. There is no better place. People comparing people right on the final stage of making a a a, a decision. That's where advertisers want to be. It's where their biggest sort of return on return on investment is, uh, and that inventory is pretty pretty small. I mean, it's why Google makes so much money, right? I mean, every time you type in a search, you're giving them very clear intention of what you're what you're interested in, and if you give them an ad that is related directly related to what they're interested in, everyone's happy. Yeah. When when you first came with the idea, and you. Um, I don't know. We're sort of uh, when it's sort of at the experimental stages, or, or, or just past that. I mean, did you actually start building a prototype yourself? I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in this because as someone who's been very successful, been an investor, you had huge exits, but yet you know how to code too. I mean, do you, have you totally abdicated from the role of of you know system builder, um, and you're just going to think at a high level, or would you actually get down? roll your sleeves up for a month or two, write some code and get a sense of like how the system might actually work. And then, um, and then when you start to scale it and, 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 and grow into something bigger, pull on other people. So I haven't written code in a while, but I would say my, my specialty is, is, is product development, right? I mean, designing what the product's going to look like, what's the feature functionality. Well, Scott, Scott Leonard did all the coding uh, in the early days. He's a total stud for uh, development. Uh, I, I went around looking for databases on, on government sites. You know, we weren't, we weren't uh, curating these databases back then. It was just us two. So I was finding government public domain databases and throwing them uh, at the system. See how it worked. So uh, we got some pretty secure stuff in there. 
what kind of uh, platform are you guys using in terms of, uh, I mean, you know, your, I don't know, languages and, and servers and stuff like that, and databases? It's all, it's all LAMP, so um, okay. on, on AWS servers. Okay. Uh, Drupal's the framework, though. How many people in the company? About 20, 20 full-time. So that's a, that's a lot less than uh, you, you're used to running uh, at a company like DoubleClick. How, do, how does, I mean, obviously, well, how many was at DoubleClick? <laughs> Maybe I should ask that question before I ask my next one. I mean, the peak was 2,500. Okay, so 2,500 is a lot different to 20, uh, and, and I guess different management styles. How do you kind of move from one management style to the other and, and keep it going? It's a great question. I'm not sure there's a big difference, right? I mean, the outcomes are, are the same. Um, I mean, I... I actually kind of prefer one of the reasons I left the CEO at DoubleClick was I wasn't having any fun anymore. I mean, when you, when you become really big, all you do is deal with lawyers and politicians and media and no offense guys, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I, that would actually be a compliment. It's, it'll be a, com- it'll be a compliment that they were actually considered media. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see you're having fun now looking at tech, looking at the TechCrunch article about you seeing you playing volleyball there on the beach. And we surf anytime there's surf down here, we, we try to get out. So balance is, that's a big, big difference. I'm not sure we had balance back in, you know, the internet days. It was, it was a crazy time. There, there was- Do you think that, I mean, a lot of people would, for example, Jason Calacanis would say that having too much fun <laughs> would, I mean, basically if you don't really put your, your nose to the grindstone and work 24 seven, you're not going to be, be a winning company. Well, it's an issue. You know, what's the, what's the optimization, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, back when I was in the twenties, I could work a hundred hour weeks. Um, but at what point to become, is, is there uh, decreasing returns? Uh, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, we work hard I mean, we work probably harder than most Santa Barbara companies. People are near at seven and they leave at you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. So people are putting in good 12, 13 hours a day, but during the middle of the day, I'm going to go watch my kids football game or, you know, the swells up, we go, we go surf or we go, actually we weren't playing volleyball, we were playing uh, frisbee. Um, oh, apologies. <laughs> no problem. Uh, you know, so we just try to have more fun. Well, how do you feel um, about I mean, what are the pros and cons for you of doing a company in Santa Barbara? Because in one sense, you, you, it does seem like you would have a better work-life balance because you're not caught up in, um, I don't know, the craziness of the valley. Um, but in another sense, you're sort of, um, there's some distance between you and, like you said, the VCs who you interact with and help you out. I mean, what's, in your mind, how is that working out? Uh, I mean, good and bad. I mean, Santa Barbara, for what we're doing we just need really smart people uh, in UCSB and in Westmont. And, you know, we have two great colleges that people want to stay. So we can hire people out of college. They're brilliant. They want to work. They get a great entrepreneurial program over there. So they know what it's all about. Uh, on the flip side, trying to find, you know, a good seasoned senior software engineer is tough. You know, Santa Barbara is a, you know, the old saying is newly wet or newly dead. Um, so people come in here young, but it's tough to raise a family. So getting middle management is tough. Um, Why is it tough to raise a family? Is it just because it's so expensive? It's expensive, yeah. I mean, you know, condos go for. Do you do you uh, consider working wait, 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 virtually, Justin, building a virtual company? Justin, just he was about to answer the question. You said you said it's it's expensive. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You said it, 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 housing is 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 what is it? What does it run over there? Oh, it's you know it's a million bucks a house. But to your question about virtual, absolutely. So I think, you know, Scott's actually in, in Atlanta. So uh, we do a lot of outsourcing in India, but 
when I say outsourcing data, data entry. Um, but I think you will probably see us be more virtual. And it's possible now. I think most people are very hesitant about it, uh, but they're not, not anymore. Right. So um, what would you say some of the, the um, biggest lessons that you learned from DoubleQuick that you're able to apply to uh, running Find the Best? I mean, I'm using a lot of the same stuff we used there, which was, you know, very focused. You know, there's usually only one or two things that makes a product. Um, that's one of the things I really loved about the uh, social network movie. You know, they kind of highlighted that. You know, what's the, what's the one or two things that are going to separate us? So we spent a lot of time, you know, really brainstorming the hundred things that we could do and then narrowing it down to the three or four that we are, we are going to do. Uh, the other one was, you know, I called, we hire smart athletes, just hire, don't hire anyone based on skills, uh, but hire them based on, you know, how intelligent they are and how competitive because, you know, a smart competitive person will figure anything out, figure anything yeah, out. Yeah. Cause that's always so funny uh, when you read these, um, job postings for, oh, we want someone who has seven years of Python and three years of jQuery. And I'm like, what? I mean, if it takes you, you know, any longer than a week or so to get up to speed on jQuery or a couple of weeks to get moving on Python, then you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, you take someone who's a smart coder in C++ or, you know, even if they've never even done, they've never even seen Python or JavaScript, you know, you take somebody who's bright and knows a language, I mean, they're going to figure it out quickly. And I, I don't, I'm, I'm just sort of shocked that nowadays recruiters or even the tech companies themselves, they still think in terms of that. And not only do they think in terms of specific technologies, they think in terms of specific a number of years experience, which is also doesn't make much sense. And uh, I'm wondering when you no, guys I think, yeah, I okay, totally agree. No, I totally agree. Well, except for, except for the one thing that if you don't have a lot of, lot of years experience at being a, a coder in general, uh, I don't know, say three years, then you're going to make a lot of kind of silly mistakes just because you don't understand general theory. But I mean, I can, I can understand about a specific language. Yeah. No, and I agree. And we're actually looking for the, for a, a senior coder right now because, because of that, you know, we, we need someone that, sort of been around the block a few times and understands, you know, scaling issues and things that you don't necessarily learn, learn in school. We, we have um, a lot of people like that in our audience. So hopefully, uh, yeah, put, put that job shout out and uh, we'll, we'll ask them to send us some emails and we'll forward them on to you. <laughs> so senior coder who understands scaling issues, who wants to live the good life in Santa Barbara. <laughs> I, you know, a, a coding stud, you know, anyone who can figure out, you know, no problem too big, you know, loves to code, wants it as a career, real passionate about technology. Who enjoys Frisbee on the beach. They don't even have to enjoy Frisbee on the beach. We'll, we'll let them, <laughs> we'll let them slide on that. <laughs> nice. And we don't need any more surfers, so. <laughs> so, Kevin, you wrote a book called Map of Innovation, Creating Something Out of Nothing. Um, and I'd just like to hear how that book came about for you. Okay. So, I mean, I've always, my whole career has been, either starting companies or starting trying to find new products uh, within companies. And, 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 and over the years, I kind of come up with the system for doing it. Um, and somebody had approached, approached me. It was actually Harvard business press. They said, I was writing a book and they kept approaching me and approaching me. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to write a book. So after I left double click, they came back and asked when I said left, I was no longer, I was still with them, but not CEO. Um, they said, you want to write a book? I was like, all right, now I got time. Uh, I go, but it's not going to be a Harvard business press kind of book. They go, perfect. We're trying to, you know, trying to break out of the, the mold 
Um, so, so I uh, wrote the book and then Harvard Business Press decided to get back to the Harvard Business, Business Press kind of, kind of books. And uh, they didn't like my book. <laughs> a little too street, street, street uh, wise for them. Um, and, but another uh, random house picked it up. So a uh, terrible way to make money. I don't know if you, if you, in fact, I fortunately I made no money off it. I didn't lose any money, didn't make any money. So it makes my tax returns easy. Uh, but it was, <laughs> it was great for just putting sort of a, a systematized uh, process down of starting from nothing. How do you, how do you come up with an idea? Uh, how do you come up with a, a, a great idea? And, and, and then how do you build a company around it? You know, how do you vet it? How do you... Did, did, did it help you kind of reconfirm what you'd learned? Because some, sometimes we learn things and we kind of know them internally, but we don't actually, we haven't spelled them out. But I guess because you've got this opportunity to put it, put it down on paper, it maybe even re-educated yourself about what you do. It did. Yeah, absolutely. So it, 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 it solidified everything that I'd been kind of doing but not doing it consistently or doing it, you know, different ways. And, um, I hate to say perfected it. I mean, it was it definitely, it definitely was far from perfect, but it perfected it, uh, where now it's very sort of reproducible and it's great. I get emails from people saying, Hey man, I, you know, I came up with a, you know, you really helped us build the company and came up with a great idea because of it. Awesome. Did you, did you apply the ideas to, um, to, to find the best? Yeah, absolutely. We use it every day here. Well, can you give us a little uh, overview of what the process is? I mean, the general concept, and this is, this is nothing new, but it's just using brainstorming for every aspect of the business and then just how you use it. And then how do you take the, the, the hundred ideas and narrow it down to three? Um, so take an example. I mean, the way I come up with, with new, we came up with new product ideas from scratch is you, you figure out what are problems. Uh, all, companies, all companies have one purpose in life, and that's to solve a problem. Uh, nothing else matters. I, 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 I think business schools get it sort of everything's upside down. It's not about profits or finance. It's about solving a problem. So you brainstorm on what are the biggest problems facing a particular industry or group. Uh, and then you brainstorm on, um, and then you narrow it down to the top ones. Then you brainstorm on te- technology. What are the big emerging technology trends? Because most startups come about at the, at the sort of disjoints in technology. And you apply these trends to the problems and try to figure out, you know, great solutions. Um, but the, the big thing is, is the brainstorming is you come up with hundreds of ideas and then you empower everybody in the room, all the, all the hopefully really smart people in the room to make forced choices on, on what's most important. What you find is a, a pretty strong consensus, right? All the answers are in the room. You get a hundred possible, possible solutions and you narrow it down to two or three. And you just cut out all the political discussions and arguing, and, and you very quickly come to a consensus. And so you can apply this to anything. You can apply it to, you know, what's our marketing strategy going to be? All right, these are the 100 different ways you're going to market. These are the two ways that we all agree on are the, are the best ways to market. Um, and I just find, you know, I found over the years that most of the answers are already in the room. Uh, they've been in the room, uh, and you can spend you know three six months arguing about stuff, arguing about the hundred things that you could be doing. Uh, but the reality is, there's really only two or three things you should be doing, and the quicker you can get to that, uh, the better off you are. There's a lot of interesting um, 
research that's been done on sort of idea formation and, and, and uh, brainstorming. And a couple that I remember us discussing on the show was um, that people, uh, it's hard to sometimes come up with like two or three good ideas, but if you give someone the task of coming up with like, say, 20 ideas or 30 ideas, that, that seems to open up the spigot for people. Um, yep. Another one was that, you know, if you get people in a room, um, a lot of times people are less creative than if you they go off by themselves and say, okay, everybody go off and, co- and come up with 20 new ideas, and then we'll come and, and we'll discuss them as opposed to thinking, trying to think them up on the spot because people's brains are sort of half geared to listening or anticipating other people speaking, and also, you know, one or two people might end up sort of dominating the discussion and therefore shutting other people down. Um, I'm curious, you know, what... What percentage or, or what amount of the of the process derived just from your own uh, sort of experience, and and what and how much of it came from maybe research that you did on um, on on the, on, the, on the current literature? So I, I mean, I, I definitely read sort of books on creativity and brainstorming. You know, is very 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 common, and I can't remember exactly. I don't I don't quite understand. I don't know whether I borrowed everything I came up with or or you know took some ideas and, you know, made them slightly unique uh, or combined them. Um, but I know one, one really important thing is, is during the brainstorming process, you don't allow discussion. You know, you just don't discuss. Right. Uh, or you ask questions in different ways, like, like you know, it's sort of in the negative. Um, um. And it's not perfect. You know, the one good thing about doing it in a group is that sometimes bad ideas, even, even solicit bad ideas, will, will spawn off good ideas. But not everyone works well that way. And I, I haven't actually tested the, um, you know, coming up with the ideas offline and then coming together. Uh, right. But it could be true. That could be, could be, could be a better way. I remember reading this, uh, our, I think it was an article talking about the professor that was asking um, their students, everybody had to come up with like two or three, say, story ideas or something the next day. And, you know, in the next, in, or the next class, people came in and, and hardly anyone had anything new. <laughs> a few people had one. And then he said, all right, everybody has to come up with 20. And then it was like, that was the, the example. And, and, and people had no problem. Because once you say, all right, you have to come up with so many that you can't really anguish over any, how good any one idea is, then people start to think a little more quickly and just start throwing stuff out there. Um, yeah, in my, it, in, in my sort of, uh, if I had a famous saying, uh, people get tired of hearing it's uh, ideas are cheap. Right. So you got to come up with a, a bunch of ideas uh, in order to find one good one. Do, do then, you use any um, um, software to, to facilitate? I know there's like things like Idea Storms or something or whatever it is that like, isn't Adele or one of those companies has, has something like that? You know, we have and it's so easy. We just tend to do whiteboard. You know, we post right. the problem, post the topic and then just brainstorm. We probably do that. I mean, most of the comparison apps that we come up with, that's what we do. You know, we'll say technology. Okay, what are, what are people... You know, what are things we could do in technology? How important to innovation is creativity versus persistence, in your view? You know, I mean, one of the curse, curses of a, of a lot of entrepreneurs is they're too creative. And so they, they yeah. tend not to focus. You see this all the time, right? It's like they've got this company, they're working on it. They're like, oh, we're going to, you know, get this other great idea. We're going to pursue that. We'll pursue 10 of them. And they can't. So I don't know. It's, it's a tough optimization. You got to be creative. You got to be able to come up with the ideas, but you got to be, um, um, we used to call it double click, you know, sort of 20% strategic and 80% tactical. Uh, you got to be 
you got to be creative, but you also got to be able to be able to lock down and, and, and just be persistent as hell. But mm. to always, you know, always as you're going along the course, making, you know, creative, small course adjustments. Right, right. So when, um, you know, before, before doing Find the Best, is, you, you took some time off, um, and uh, I guess this is sort of, you sold um, DoubleClick, and was it 2003, and then you spent that time uh, primarily as an investor, is that right? Um, with, uh, your, with O'Connor Ventures, which is your, your own personal, I guess, VC firm? Yeah, so uh, DoubleClick got sold in 2005, so I was, and I was chairman then, I was from, I guess, 2001, 2005, so uh, okay. I was working on that part-time, um, okay. but mostly I was just doing, yeah, doing venture capital. And, you know, how did that, how did that work out for you? I mean, um, first of all, the question is, I guess, what made you want to start a VC firm in particular? It was a way to stay connected to technology. You know, it was one thing I could, I, I thought I had a lot to bring to, to people that I was, I was both, a was an entrepreneur. So I could, could help them with all the stuff that I'd learned. Um, and I just, I'm, I don't know. I just love technology. I'm just fascinated. So you figure out ways that you can. How many ventures do you have out there right now uh, that you've kind of funded? Uh, I guess maybe six. Right. And how, how, what was your deal flow like? I mean, if, um, I, you know, you said that, you know, Santa Barbara is a little, uh, obviously, disconnected from, say, the Valley. How are you getting um, opportunities thrown, coming your way? A lot of it was Southern California. I mean, I, I got, I would always get people from all over the country sending stuff in all over the world. Um, that was probably the tougher one, just having to say no to everybody. Uh, so it was just really focusing. If I get something from Silicon Valley, it's an immediate no, because if you come down to Santa Barbara to raise money in Silicon Valley, it must be a real, uh, right. a real dog. You can't raise money uh, down the block. Um, but, you know, Santa Barbara is a pretty interesting area. It's got a lot of, lot of startups. What are your thoughts on AngelList? About what? AngelList. AngelList. Oh, you haven't heard of it? That's the one. I, it got a lot of press recently. I think it, I'm not sure if it was a South by oh, South. But the one yeah, can, yeah. That's the one where the angels are kind of coming together. Yeah. So like you register yourself on the site and you say, okay, this is the kind of deals that I do. These are the people who I tend to invest in. This is the amount that I tend to invest. These are the areas I specialize in. And then I guess companies who want to invest, who, who are looking for funding can go and create a profile on it. And it's, it's supposed to create sort of this, yeah. I don't know, it's somewhere between a market and a social network, I guess, to help uh, companies and yeah, match, match it all together. Match.com. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> angels, okay, uh, I'm always a little bit leery of it. I, I don't like the word angels. I know it kind of means something different in Silicon Valley. Right. Most other parts of the country, it means guys that made their money in something else and they want to strike it rich in technology. Um, right. They don't really bring a lot to the table. Do you think that we're in a, a bubble right now? There's a lot of press to, saying that we're in a bubble. I don't know. I think I think the general feeling is there's gonna be some really big IPOs coming out. I think I think we got a good run coming. There's a ton of IPOs gonna be coming out. There's gonna be a lot of public currencies and a lot of people doing deals. Five right. years, we could very well have a bubble. So I, I guess it's. I mean, one of the reasons that we haven't had the, uh, so many IPOs, at least um, before the uh, recession. Were the was because of uh, Sorbanes Oxley being so onerous that that companies just were like screw it right. I mean, is that 
I mean, that's still there. I mean, it hasn't been repealed. It hasn't really been watered down. So why is there going to be suddenly be a lot more IPOs um, than there would have been, say, four or five years ago? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of times there haven't been IPOs because there was a couple of market meltdowns in between between mm-hmm. that. You know, Sarbanes-Oxley is a total pain in the ass and another example of Congress not knowing what they're doing. I, I got off every public <laughs> board I was on because it was they just sucked all the fun out of being a being a uh, board member. You know, you used to talk about things like strategy and products and, you know, that it just turned into, you know, how do you cover your ass so you don't get sued? Um, <laughs> that for a, how was that for a little personal? Uh, what, what, what is Sarb- Sarbanes-Oxley, just for, for those of us not in the know? Sarbanes-Oxley was, you know, the stop another Enron or WorldCom um, by creating these onerous, completely onerous restrictions and regulations on, on small businesses and big businesses. But it typically adds, you know, two to $5 million to a uh, company uh, and exposes the directors and everyone else involved. So what happens now, I mean, if, if it sort of sucks the fun out of it for board members, our board members, uh, do they have to be compensated more than they would otherwise just to put up with it and to expose themselves to that kind of risk? So, I mean, I, I've generally have seen the people that you, a lot of times you'd want on a board sort of people have done successful things and have done well in life, uh, uh, have gotten off boards because of the personal liability. I didn't mean, right. you make maybe make $150,000 being on a board. I mean, it's good money, but the liability, the downside risk is so huge. How, how does that risk, uh, affect you? Where does the risk come from? What is the risk? I mean, the risk is I just have a buddy who's, a um, a corporate litigator kind of, kind of took me through the kind of questions that I ask you, you know, did you read all these SEC documents, you know, thousand page SEC document, you know, your signatures on it, you know, did you, you know, did you do, you know, you're dealing with huge companies, you know, did you know this? Did you do that? Did you put your names on it? Um, you know, you just, you just have the SEC wants you to sign everything. Um, and you do sign it, but you rely on, on, on lawyers, you rely on CFOs, you rely on a lot of people, to make sure the information's right. So it's impossible to know what you've what you've signed, basically. Exactly. Right, and and I guess a lot of that came out of you know the whole Enron, you know, fiasco and WorldCom and some of the other stuff. I mean, because Enron had this incredibly complex structure: companies that own companies that own companies that own companies, and everything was so incredibly complicated that apparently nobody could understand it. And uh, that was sort of a way of saying, okay, look, if you're the CEO or the CFO or a chairman or on the board, you have to know all this stuff. Is, is that, that's, that, that's kind of, that was one of the driving reasons, right? I mean, that's part of it. I mean, but part of those companies, there was collusion that went on and you can never stop collusion. You know, right. if, if, if people are signing documents and, and, and forging things and, and colluding together to, to commit a crime, I mean, you just, it's really hard to stop it. You know, auditors should be doing that. You know, the audit committee, you know, should be catching some of this stuff, but you can't catch everything. And so what you do is you, you know, okay, let's say those companies cause, I don't know, $50 billion in damage. You know, now you've, how much has Sarbanes actually caused? And right. just more lawyers, more accountants, you know, more friction. So it's, it's basically cost the economy, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's like anytime you, know you introduce more paper pushing into the economy, it's just it's sort of a net loss for everybody, except for the lawyers and the accountants. <laughs> yeah, they always win. Um, but the other <laughs> one is just, you know, there, look, there is risk. I mean, I, my whole view is, you know, white-collar criminals, 
you know, they should, they should go to jail for forever. Um, you know, punish the crimes, um, but don't punish innovation. Right. right. What do you, what do you th- feel about the idea that, you know, I, I've, I've heard that it sometimes it's hard for someone who's had a big success to start in something small that they're, they're, they're looking for uh, a success of the same magnitude or larger, but a lot of ideas start with something really small. And it's usually a small idea that sort of grows um, with over time. And, and do you feel? Did you feel a lot of pressure, or do you feel a lot of pressure because of what you did with DoubleClick um, coming into uh, Find the Best? Okay, Doctor Ruth, let me uh, <laughs> feel like I'm talking to a therapist. <laughs> These are all very good, like probing personal questions. Um, I mean, yes and no. I mean, in some ways, the pressure is off. I, I find it nothing wrong. I find it funny, you know, creating. Is there something wrong with creating a you know twenty thirty million dollar company or ten million dollar company or hundred million dollar company? I mean, those are all great things. Am I going to create something bigger than DoubleClick? I have no idea. I mean, probably not. You know, the odds aren't aren't hugely in my favor. But you know, if you if you if you go if you go for a big problem, a huge problem, and I think we're going after a huge problem, um, and you come up with the best solution, you're going to do well. How well is is all the derivative of that. I know I don't think of things like, okay, I'm going to, this one's going to go for $5 billion. I just, just don't, don't think of it. You, you try to come up with the biggest problem you can go after and, and do it and do it better. With an exit like DoubleClick, um, a lot of folks would, would kind of hang up their hat and spend the rest of their life sipping martinis on a private yacht. <laughs> but obviously uh, you've, you've really stuck with it. And so I was just wondering um, what, what keeps you passionate about it? Well, yeah, I think you generally find, I mean, you know, why did Bill Gates hang out with, not that I'm Bill Gates, but why, you know, why did, why did Larry Ellison, Bill Gates and those guys all, all continue and Michael Dell? I mean, I think Rockefeller sums it up. I mean, whoever, if, if you're after the money, you're never going to get it. You're, if you think a million bucks is enough, you're never going to get it because it's not about that. Yeah. It's about, it's about pursuing something you're passionate about. Uh, I can't believe I get paid for what I do, you know? Because it's fun. Yeah. I mean, I would have done it. I would have done it for a lot less. I mean, well, I would, your- life would suck if I got paid a lot of money. I feel that I feel sorry for those guys, guys that make a lot of money. that don't like what they do. Yeah. The old golden handcuffs problem. <laughs> yeah. well, well, what did your wife and kids think when you decided to go and do a startup again, knowing how all all consuming could be and uh, how much time it would take? Because I'm sure they got used to having you around and having a flexible schedule. Okay, that is Dr. Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just interesting, right? I mean, because you know, you you know, I would imagine that because you talk about that on your in your bio about you know you were volunteering as a I think as a coach for your, your kids, uh, or was it the local college you were you were um, you coached at one point um, a, a, yeah. a college wrestling team and stuff like that? Uh, high school wrestling team, and then I kept coaching my kids' teams and stuff. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time time with them, so they're uh, they're pretty good, and I and I, and I try to make more time. Um, I'm not traveling like I did a double click. I mean, I, I won't let myself get into that, into that level, that level. Uh, my wife, Nancy's thrilled that I'm back, back to doing stuff. All right. She, she think she's, she's had a little, little too much of you too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's always known me for working all the time. So I would say me working less was probably a bigger adjustment. Right. Uh, right. She likes to travel and do stuff and you know, it's, it's good. I'm more balanced, which is, which is more important. 
Right. So um, I guess we're at about the hour mark, um, and uh, Amy said that you only had an hour allocated, so we don't want to keep you uh, any longer unless you uh, have some more stuff that you'd like to, to discuss, any, any uh, find the best stuff that we missed out on. Uh, I mean, it's totally up to you guys if you got okay. any more questions. But um, no, you know, I find the best. I mean, I think one of the interesting things, you talk, talked about the TechCrunch tech article. Um, and we had, it was a great, very nice article. Uh, yeah, but going through the comments was kind of interesting and no one believes what we're doing. Uh, and I think that's kind of, and at first I was kind of, I was kind of bent out of shape. I'm like, oh, how dare they not believe it. And, I, and then I realized this is exactly what we're combating. There's so much cynicism on the internet. No one believes anything and, and no one should believe us. You know, it, it, we got to earn trust. And that's something that comes through time and experience. And, um, you know, just cause someone, I'm, I'm always leery when someone says they're going to do, you know, something good. Uh, right. They trust me uh, and people should be leery. So, so for us, it's, you know, it's our mantra, you know, consumer advocate. Um, and if anyone ever sees us not being a consumer advocate, you know, I want to, I want to hear about it. Yeah. It's, it's funny though. I mean, that just TechCrunch is known that that comments is just a, are just a cesspool there at TechCrunch. I mean, it's just so much yeah. negativity and stuff, but then again, I don't know how you feel about it, but sometimes the negativity initially it sort of ir- irritates me, but then it, then the anger makes me work harder. You know, it sort of fortifies me. I, I, it's like we, we talked about it one time we call it like Hulk entrepreneurialism. <laughs> it's like the more, Oh, you can't do this. It's impossible. Then you're like, all right, I'm going to show you, I'm going to put it in your face. I mean, do you, does how 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 does it? Uh, are you able to leverage it in that way psychologically? As long as I'm analyzing you psychologically. <laughs> no, I mean I think no, I think it is it, it no, I think it I think it negatively I think it can be very negative, especially the ones you know are, are bullshit. You know the ones that are that are personal attacks. Those are the ones that kind of bug you, uh, and then you just realize. You know what? There's so much information on the internet. No one's ever, you know, it's, it's me and him reading it. So who cares? I actually think it's quite a, a good a good place to be in because if 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 everyone thinks that that there's no hope going down that path, that's actually quite a good path to go down because you've obviously you, you, you've got more chance of building a, a good blue sky business. No, we, I agree. I agree with you. I think that's that's the real opportunity, and we got to stick to it. I love you know our, our board member Randy Conversar is a. And Kleiner is a huge believer in that. That's why, you know, he invested and wanted to get involved. And, and it's just, it's nice to have a VC that's in there. It has a complete alignment. It says remain clean, just totally clean. Be a great consumer advocate and, uh, you know, it'll be great. Was it anything like that at the start of DoubleClick? Did, was there any similar kind of sentiment with anyone you interacted with at that time? Um, or is this a new a kind of new experience? Yeah, I mean, that was a B2B business. I mean, we weren't, you know, for us, it was, you know, you know, advertising's not real popular. Um, I look at it in a very positive light in the sense that because of sort of what DoubleClick and what other companies of our ilk did is we, we kept the internet free. Um, and the fact that anybody anywhere in the world can get access to virtually any information for free uh, is really revolutionary. Uh, it's just incredible. It came from advertising. Now, advertising isn't always mm-hmm. most, you know, other than advertising agencies, people don't usually uh, get excited about it. Um, but this one, I think this one's particularly fun because I'm, I'm a hardcore sort of capitalist. 
uh, lays a fair kind of guy, uh, but I, I, I know the downsides of, of capitalism, which is there are bad companies with terrible products screwing over consumers, and it, it personally drives me insane. I'm one of those guys that calls, you know, calls companies um, and, and goes after them. You know, I see the, the 800 number, you know, on TV and I call them up and just, you know, you know harass them. Uh, we want good companies and good products to win. You know, good products, good, good companies, you know, better the world. They, they, they employ more people. You know, there's just, it's just, it's a better place. You scam artists, companies that have, really crappy products spend, spend a lot of money in advertising to, uh, to fool people. I, I just love to get rid of them. Well, I guess one thing I'd be curious about is your, um, is your growth strategy. I mean, you seem like you're, you're primarily a technology company and I know that the larger co- that companies get it, sometimes it seems that it's harder and harder for them to innovate, but then if you don't grow fast enough, it's hard to build everything you need. I mean, what's the, how does that trade off working in your mind? I don't know. You know, I mean, at, at, at DoubleClick, I think we had, we had a really, really good innovative system that just constantly cranked out new innovations. And I think innovation is just throughout the company. Um, and we do it here. It's, it's everybody. Everyone is just constantly being forced to innovate. So, so it's more of a, uh, it's, it's, it's more sort of a, um, a, I know, a company culture. It's not necessarily the size of the company. It's that you can do it with a large company. You just have to have the right culture, maybe the right systems in place. Yeah, so it's definitely a company culture, but it's also what you, you then can accomplish, right? So here, you know, DoubleClick, we could come up with 100 ideas and narrow it down to four and actually do it. Here, it's, you know, we we'll take 100 ideas and narrow it down to one uh, and, and, and do it slower. So right. the advantage of a big company is you can, you know, you can blow stuff out really fast. Right, right. The disadvantage is you, is you can't blow out anything fast because you're, you're too damn big. Well, where are you in terms of your um, your money raising and in terms of your your growth of, of hiring people? I mean, are, are you at a, you just have a Series A and you're going to go for another big round and then hire another twenty, thirty, forty people, or how, what's um, what's your current growth strategy? Well, I mean, we'll probably it, it depends on a couple of things. We'll, we'll just doing what we're doing now. We'll you know we'll double in size probably over the next six eight months. Um, mm-hmm but there's some possible extensions of our platform into various areas that we're, you know, we're still sort of experimenting with. Right. It, it could be, could be interesting. How's that for being totally vague? <laughs> right. Now, no did problem. you, did you learn any lessons about how to grow a company from um, double click that you're able to apply? I mean, in terms of maybe growing fast or, you know, how quickly you hire people or, or anything like that? Yeah, I think, you know, this gets back to sort of the smart athlete. We tried to hire people that that were capable of just not one rolling up their their sleeves and getting their hands dirty now, uh, but could lead fifty people, five hundred people, you know, five thousand people, you know, people that could scale. So that was the big thing, um, and really keeping it, you know, keeping the culture where you don't hire somebody to fill a seat. You got to hire the, the, the right person. Rather have the seat empty uh, than to fill it with the wrong person. Because, you know, the old adage, you know, A players hire A, play, a players and, you know, B, the, the hiring spar- B managers hire C, C players. You know, you, you, once you allow that to happen, then you're, you're kind of doomed. Yeah, I think uh, Kevin Rose, actually, there was a thing, 
thing sort of made some noise in the interview on the internet was that I think Kevin Rose talked about how they grew Deke so quickly that they got a lot of B and C people in who started hiring their C and D friends, and then all of a sudden that was part of the problem, uh, you know, for Dig is they just uh, they they thought they they fell into the trap of hiring warm bodies, and it didn't work. And you got to have you, you, you one thing that we we definitely do here is we do a lot of we're very very quantitative. You know, can we produce a widget for X and sell it for Y and 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 all that? You know, and once we can prove that, once we prove something, and then we blow it out. And we did it a double click. You know, we just wouldn't throw money at something, and money can be the real curse for for startups. Uh, the real curse. You, know, you see all these startups getting twenty, forty, eighty million dollars, and they you know they don't even have a they have a concept. It's going to be terrible for them. They're twenty two years old. You know, we saw this in the internet days. You know, you gotta you gotta have money to to, to roll to blow something out, not not to squander. So, do you think it's better to bootstrap, or do you think it's better to to seek funding? I mean, I, I don't think you have really a choice. I mean, I think you've got to bootstrap until you've got a, some kind of provable model, and then you can get funding. But I would, you always raise more money than you need, but don't raise more money than you'll ever need. Yeah, because it seems like you're inevitably going to be pressured by the VCs to use the money because they, they're not, they don't want to put $20 million to have 18 and a half of it sit in the bank for two years. So they're going to want you to spend it, right, and put it to use. And but if you haven't quite figured out what you want to do, or you can't find the right people, then you're going to be pressured to sort of do the wrong things. Is that what you consider part of the problem? That and that everyone else in the company knows you're sitting on a bank account of forty million bucks, and you know they want to go out and spend it. Right. So start having nice parties, nice offices. You know, you start you start living. You know, when we raise money, I told everyone this this doesn't make us. We haven't won anything. You know, this is the beginning. Yeah, you've just got yourself some time. Yeah. Well, Kevin, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This is uh, interesting stuff, and uh, find the best is very uh, intriguing. After playing with the interface, I, yeah, the first thing I thought was like, hey, this looks like Kayak, which, is, of course, is a compliment because the Kayak is, is a great interface. So that's uh, really, really, really cool product. Thank you. Um, if you have any suggestions or ideas, please let us know. It was yeah. fun talking yeah, to you. Yeah, well... Hopefully we'll get some in the comments from our uh, from our listeners. We usually get a lot of feedback, so um, we do. And yeah. uh, anyone, any of our listeners who's uh, who wouldn't mind moving to Santa Barbara, uh, send us an email and we'll forward it on to uh, Kevin. Um, <laughs> and uh, thanks a lot, Kevin. Great to talk to you. All right. Uh, thanks again for coming on. And that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>